The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Make sure you put a finger in Revelation 4 someplace, but we'll be uh, the bulk of our time and especially the beginning in Ephesians 1. Um, while you're turning there, just a couple of quick announcements on some things that we've alluded to recently that I wanted to bring you up to speed on. Um, we had some exciting news happen this week as a church. I'm going to be able to give you a partial um, announcement of it today, and then we'll talk details this time next week. Um, but as the church has grown, we, we've been going through a lot of different changes and just realizing that, um, well, it, it's good to know what your gifts are. It's also good to know what your weaknesses are. You know what I mean by that? Um, and and that's, that's a good thing. F- for me, I love to teach. I love to spend time with people. I love to be in the Word. I am not a systems or detail-oriented guy at all. I'm big picture, not small picture. So, so I'm the guy on staff that comes up with ideas. Let's do this, let's do this, let's do this. And then instantly gets bored when we start talking about the nuts and bolts of how to do this and this and this. Does that make sense? Anyone else like me out there, big picture people? At Myers-Briggs, we call those ENFPs, if you've ever done that. Um, that's, that's who I am. Um, and as a staff, uh, for the most part, except for Pastor Brent, who's leading our children's ministry right now, we don't really have anyone who's gifted in that sort of administrative structure, that kind of stuff. And as the church has grown, we've just become more and more aware of the need for it in many, many different areas. And so we started the search recently um, to hire an executive pastor. And, and we mean more than just a pastor that he makes sure the bills get paid kind of a thing. That's what most people's experience with an executive pastor or an administrative pastor um, is used to. What we're talking about is someone with a pastor's heart who has vision and desire to see the mission that this church has fulfilled. And so he can take those big picture ideas and then lead in actually seeing them play out and accomplished on the ground in a way that um, looks a lot less disorganized than what I would do. And um, this week, we came to an agreement with a, uh, with a guy that is, it's like, it's like a score. It's like landing LeBron James or something like that, right? So um, we're just really excited about that. We also had told you guys that we are going to be hiring a junior high pastor to take over the junior high ministry and a few other little things as well. And... Um, We are uh, in conversation with a couple of people, one in particular right now, so be praying for us as we go through that. Um, Also, within the leadership of the church, um, we're going through some new organizational and structural shifts there as well. Um, Our elders here, right now there's seven of them. Our our, our board is never more than seven because we feel like getting those guys together to make the business decisions, budget meetings, things like that, it's just incredibly difficult to get a lot done when you have much more than that. But the the fallout from that is we don't have enough thumbs on the pulse of the congregation as it's grown too. And so the leadership structure that we had when we were 200, 300 people, it's not working out so well when we're seven and 800 people. And so we're having to make a shift right now. And so um, just asking that you'd be in prayer for us and for um, many different men in the church right now as we're starting the process of actually raising up a different elder board here at the congregation. Um, We will have what's now referred to as governing elders. That's the board of directors that makes the the budget decisions and the the nuts and bolts stuff. They, They run the business, if you will of the church. But then in addition to that, we are now um, going through the process of interviewing some different men, and this is going to be something that we'll be rolling out and meeting with men for the next few months, probably, um, uh, shepherding elders, men whose, whose calling and job, if you will, it is to just minister to the spiritual needs of the congregation, that we come together and pray. A lot of what's happened in our elders meetings over the last year or two is that we get together for an elders meeting and there's so much business that has to be done that we find very little time to get in the word together, to talk about things going on in maybe marriages in the church or families in the church and to get into those things. And next thing you know, it's Wednesday night at 11.30. We just got the budget part done and everybody's exhausted. And so we're going home, you know what I mean? And so, so we're looking at finding a way to create structures within the church and put more and more shepherds out into the body of the church so that we can do a better job serving you Um, being aware of what's going on in your lives, ministering to you, and and being available, and if you will, catching those who come in. Um, We believe there's a lot of people who have 
come into our church, and because of a lot of this lately, we, we've struggled with kind of having systems and things in place to be able to assimilate them into the body in many ways. And so we're looking to make some moves to address that as we speak. So there's a lot of stuff going on right now in the leadership level of the church, and so just want to encourage you guys to pray. Oh, and by the way, we still got legal issues going on because of the Supreme Court issue and new bylaws we're going through. It's just a really busy time for the church leadership, and we want to continue to create a culture here at Heritage where we're being really transparent with you guys and not just like you find out at the last minute, oh, we do this now, and like there's changes that are thrown out in front of you guys. So we're, we're trying to grow and get better and better at that as we move forward. So just letting you guys know what's going on there, please be in prayer for us. I believe the Lord is doing some amazing and good things. I'm excited to introduce your new pastor to you next week. That's going to be fantastic. And I think God is, uh, well, he's just being faithful to do what he, what he does, to care for his church. Amen? So God's doing good stuff. Um, now we're going to look at some great stuff that God has done as we turn to the book of Ephesians in chapter 1. And we're going to start in verse 3 and read this sentence that we've really been breaking down for a few weeks now. This sentence that runs all the way to verse 14. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he has lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So that we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Let's pray. God, we ask that you would just grace us with your presence and your spirit as we open your word. Lord, would you teach us? Would you show us? Would you reveal to us that which we need, that which would build up your church, that which would accomplish your mission, that which would help us to see you for who you are, your greatness and your grandeur, that which leads us to worship. And I pray, God, that you would just bless our time together. So Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. Oh, my King, my Rock, and my Redeemer. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen, amen. Well, the point is praise. That's where we've been headed for the last few weeks as we're working through this particular text. And so I have a question, something for you to be able to think through as we're working today. What is it that leads you to worship and to praise? What are the things that lead people in general to worship and praise? Everyone worships. Everyone praises. It may look different depending on where you are, but there is not a human on the face of the earth that does not worship and praise. Some are moved to praise at the, the news of a new marriage. It's wedding season, got lots of weddings. I'll be doing a premarital counseling thing right after church today. And there's always excitement and joy and we go to a marriage ceremony to praise and just be excited for what's going on. Uh, maybe a new child. When a baby's born, we spread the news and everyone's joyous and excited at all of this kind of stuff. Maybe, men, it's your favorite team. Maybe you're a Golden State fan and they just won the NBA title. Maybe you're a Duck fan and they just made it to the championship game. Maybe you're a Beavers fan and it's halftime. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> sorry. I'm sorry. Sorry. You're going to get some Reese's macaroni, I guess, or whatever the case may be. I'm sorry. So sorry. Email jeremy at heritagefellowship.net. 
Maybe you got a promotion at work. Maybe you bought a new home and you're excited and want to take pictures. Or maybe you actually paid off that home and you're excited and want to show tearing up the, the contract or whatever the case may be. What are the things that lead us to worship and praise? Is it a concert and your favorite band when they play your favorite song right at the end? Is it a performance, a movie that you saw that just moved you and you couldn't wait to tell other people about it, to purchase it, to watch it over and over? Everyone worships. Some worship in churches, some worship in football stadiums, but everyone worships. So what is it that causes you to worship? But, and, and again, everyone does. There are men in this room right now that you would not be caught dead pulling your hands out of your pocket and singing and lifting your hands during worship. You wouldn't be caught dead doing that because you feel silly, you feel prideful, and you can't do that. Man, I'm not going to let people do this. I'm a man. I don't lift my hands. I don't sing. We don't do that stuff until it's a ball game. Take me out to the ball game. And then we sing like idiots. You know what I mean? The guy threw the ball, it went in a hoop, woo! You know what I mean? Those kinds of things, everyone worships. The point of all of this is praise. Now, Christians are called to praise God. Christians are called to worship and song. We're called to worship and praise God with our lives. This is what Christians are called to do. But, but it's more than just something we do in a church service. It's more than just the songs that we sing before we, we get into the Word, or in today's case, after we've been in the Word. It, it's more than just that. The point of Christianity is worship. The goal, the direction, everything is to go that way. We have been saved. This text we're looking at, as it's dealing with salvation really overall, it says over and over, to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glory. And you're going to see that play out more and more going through the book of Ephesians. The point is worship. Christians are called to worship God. Why? That's what Ephesians 1 verses 3 through 14 tackle. The book of Ephesians, as you know, it is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to an area, a region we would refer to as modern-day Turkey, but it's an area where he had planted churches previously. Paul right now, however, is in prison. He's in jail, nearing the end of his days, writing this letter back to the church in Ephesus. And unlike many of his letters, especially those that we've been dealing with lately, Corinthians and Galatians, he's not writing to deal with stuff. Like he, he's not writing this letter to the church in Ephesus to say, what are you doing? No, he's writing to encourage them, to encourage them, to teach them, to help them to grow. And the overall point is that he wants them to understand who they are in Christ and to grow into that identity. So when we started the book of Ephesians, we began with this idea of identity. Who you are determines what you do. And so Paul begins this letter, and he's going to spend the whole first half of the book of Ephesians really dealing with who we are in Christ, so that when he gets to the back half of the book of Ephesians, it's showing because this is who we are in Christ, we live our lives in this manner. And so we talked about identity when we looked at those things. But then we moved forward after that, and we began looking at verse 3 through 14, which is a really weird sentence in the original language. Now, you read this in your Bibles today, it looks kind of normal. It's just like a whole paragraph, lots of different sentences, there's commas, there's all that kind of stuff. Not the case in the original language. In the original language, we've broken this up so that we can help under, uh, so that it would help us understand what's going on more. But, but in the original language, verse 3 through 14, everything that we just read is one sentence with no commas, no punctuation. It's one continual sentence. Now, when you're in an English class and you're writing a paper and you write a sentence like this, your teacher has a name for it when she puts all the red ink on it, right? Anyone know what that is? It's a run-on sentence. A run-on sentence means you're going on and on and on and on. And another way maybe of saying that is within that sentence, you're rambling. You're just rambling, just going on and on, not getting to the point. Like, what is the deal? What is it that you're doing right now? But here's the difference. Though this would not be what our English teachers today would consider a grammatically good sentence, it is not a run-on sentence. Paul is not rambling. He's going somewhere with this. It's not just, oh, I'm over here, I'm over here. There's no real point. He's going somewhere with this text. And the idea is it's leading to praise. 
Now, he does this by talking about blessings. God is definitely the subject of the text. He's the one who is doing this. It's God who does this. It's God who does this. It's God who gives this. It's God who gives this. But the, the sentence itself is structured in such a way in the original language that it's broken down according to the blessings. Paul says here at the beginning that blessed be God, and you can see that blessings is an important part of this right away in the first verse. Blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly place. Right out the bat, blessing seems to be an important concept going on in this text, correct? Now, it doesn't mean what we tend to make it mean in this day. It doesn't mean, oh, bless you. Like that sentimental, like, bless you, good luck to you, I wish you well, I, I, I have affection for you, bless you, like that kind of, that's not what this means. This is more like the Hebrew concept of blessing, which is also referred to as shalom. You've heard people say that maybe before within a Jewish context, shalom, it's even a greeting in many cases for the Jewish people, but it's more than just a greeting. Shalom is what they're desiring and wishing for. Shalom is the perfect order of all relationships. Your relationship with God in perfect order and harmony. Your relationship with one another here on earth in perfect order and harmony. And your relationship with all of God's creation as well in perfect order and harmony. Shalom, if you will, and we touched on this last week, is what Adam and Eve had in the Garden of Eden before sin. They had perfect relationship with God, perfect relationship with one another. There was no shame, no hiding, perfect relationship with nature, perfect relationship with God's creation. Everything was peaceful, ordered, and amazing. This is what shalom means. So when Paul says in the first verse that God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing, what he means is that in Christ, everything has been granted to God's people to have shalom, that we might be in peace with God, that we might be in peace and harmony with one another, and that we might be in peace and harmony with all of God's creation. The gospel is way more holistic than many of us have grown up understanding. Many of our understanding of the gospel growing up was Jesus died for your sins. Do you want in? Say the prayer, you're in. But the gospel is infinitely bigger than that. It's about our relationship with God, our relationship with one another, our relationship with everything that God is doing because God is also in the process of rescuing sinners, winning people back to him, building his church, which is in community and harmony with one another, and redeeming all of creation, Romans 8 tells us. Creation groans for that day when God renews everything again. So this is what the gospel means in its entirety. So when, when you hear shalom, or as you're reading this text and you're understanding blessings, we are to understand that God has now given us, through Christ, everything we need to have shalom. Everything that we need to have blessings. And so we've been going through this list, and today's kind of the conclusion to that. We're going to deal with the last couple for sure, but it's sort of a, a summary and conclusion. So just in quick summary going through them. What are the blessings that Paul has given us? Now, again, this is a 202-word sentence. It is not a detailed list. Paul, in this case, is more like me, like I was telling you guys a few minutes ago. Big picture, big idea, really excited about the project. What are the tools we'll need? Ah, oh, we'll figure that out later. So in this letter, it's not to be looked at as a detailed note-by-note -note description of these are the very specific blessings you have. What Paul's doing here is gushing. He's saying, Guys, do you realize what God's given us? Man, he's given us this and this and this. And he's just getting excited to the point that he's like, to the praise of his glory. So the idea is that as Paul goes through these things and his heart is just overflowing with praise to God for the things that God has given, that that would be the effect that his words are now having on us as we take this in. So it's not an itemized list, but the way the sentence is structured would lead us to, and gives us um, great benefit in taking the time to look at this list in a detailed way. So we haven't been spending a few weeks looking at it because the, the other truth is in this section right here, verses three through 14, you basically have almost every important doctrine that's necessary to understand for the entire Christian faith. This is a massive bedrock of scripture. And if you think we've been breaking this thing apart and going through slow through this sentence, you have no clue what we could have done. 
Like last night, just for what we're gonna talk about today, I took tons of notes that I'd put together and threw them away that we won't even get to until later when we talk about the Holy Spirit some more. So, so there is so much more we could cover, but we're, what we're trying to do here is understand the flow and the direction that it's bringing us to Paul's heart, which is actually praise for God. Does that make sense? So, so what are the things that God has given us that would lead us to shalom? Well, we saw that, that we've been chosen. And that starts with Abraham. You guys realize when Abraham was called to be the father of the Israeli people, you do know he wasn't sitting out in a green, green meadow someplace having personal devotions with God, right? He wasn't at Bible study when God came and tapped him on the shoulder. He was a moon worshiper. He was a pagan in the land of Ur. And yet God comes to him, an unlikely candidate, and taps him on the shoulder and says, I have a plan for you. You're going to be the father of many nations. And he picks him, not because Abraham was this godly leader, but because God in his grace was going to turn Abraham into a godly leader. He's picked for his grace. And this, by the way, is a theme throughout Scripture. God does this over and over. He tells the people of Israel in the Old Testament, he says, look, you were chosen as my inheritance, as my children, not because you're bigger than any other nation, not because you're more powerful than any other nation, not for any of these reasons. You've been chosen because I chose you, because of grace, because I love you, you got picked. You did nothing to earn it. You go to the apostles, the followers of Jesus Christ. Why were they chosen? I mean, when a young child in Israel at that time desired to be a rabbi, they would apply to different schools. And as they go through these schools, they're memorizing the entire Old Testament by the time you actually become a full-fledged rabbi. They're studying and taking tests along the way, going to all these schools. And then at a certain point, it comes to, you're done with all of your education, and now you either become an apprentice, or it would be called a disciple of a specific rabbi. He takes you under his wing, and he teaches you and trains you, or you end up going on and taking on the family trade. And so you've gone through school, you've learned all this text, you've studied and studied and studied, and now you come and you stand before the rabbi. I want to follow this rabbi. This is the guy that I want to be. And so the rabbi would start to quiz you and test you. What's your knowledge of the Old Testament? What do you think about this? What have you learned here? And he starts going through all of these things in the scripture. And if you are the cream of the crop, if he thinks, yeah, you could do what I do. You could learn what I teach. You could then teach what I teach you. You can be a follower or a disciple of me. He would say, you, come follow me. Words that should resonate for those of us that understand Jesus' calling of the apostles, correct? But if you couldn't, if you didn't make the cut, then, oh well, time to go do the family trade. So when Jesus comes along and begins choosing the disciples, the people that he's gonna choose to follow him, what are they doing they're fishing. They're doing the family trade. They're not in the rabbis. That, that means by default, they're not the cream of the crop. They're not the smartest. They're not the wisest. They're not the guys that were lights out in seminary. They are the ones who Jesus said, my glory will be able to be manifest through this guy. Because when people see what this guy does, they're going to go, that has to be God. And so you have the apostles, not chosen because they're amazing, but chosen by grace. And what about us? When Corinthians, what does Paul say to us? <laughs> you, weren't, you weren't chosen because you were weak. God has not chosen the wise. He's chosen the foolish to confound the wise. God didn't choose the strong. He chose the weak to confound the strong. God chose us. Not many of you were wise. Not many of you were strong. But that God's glory might come through it. So over and over and over in the scriptures, we see this idea that God chooses us just by grace. And this is Paul's message. God has chosen you by grace. Now, it's a doctrine we spent some time on. If you weren't here, please go back and listen. It's a doctrine that causes a lot of people a lot of difficulty, though, because the idea is, well, he chose me, and that's amazing. Praise God for that. But does that then mean that that friend of mine over here that doesn't know Jesus, does that mean that God didn't choose him? It's what's referred to as double predestination. But then we looked at the reality that the good news is this. God chose you from the foundations of the world to be his son. Praise God for that. And you know what else? He chose you to carry the gospel to that neighbor that doesn't know Jesus. So he's covered all the bases. 
And this is the reality of it. God has chosen you. But he didn't just pick you. He's chosen you to be adopted. The next blessing that's covered is adopted. We're not, we're not just picked to be on the team. It's not just like, okay, you're gonna be on my team but to do this stuff, but for the rest of the time, you know, you're gonna go home to your own house, you're gonna be your own guy and all that stuff. You're just on my team, you're on my squad. No, he chose us to be adopted as sons to bring us in to the very household of God. I mean, look, you don't have to know a whole lot about adoption to understand a couple of things. Number one, it's really expensive. Adoption's really expensive especially international adoptions and things like that, which international adoptions in many cases have become really popular in America because of one of the great crimes in our own system here is that in many ways we've made adoption of children here in America so difficult and so many legalistic nightmares mixed up in so many of those different things that so for many people they go, that's too complicated. I'd rather spend the 20 grand and go to Africa and adopt someone over there because at least then I don't have to deal with that stuff. I mean, adoption's a tricky tricky, expensive, and long process. But for the family that feels called to adopt and loves the kid that's gonna be out on the end of it, man, they would do anything for that, right? Never met anyone that adopted a child from Africa, came back and said, man, we're so glad we did it. It was expensive though, I don't, I don't know. We, we probably could have done better with the money if we'd have done something different. I've never heard that story before. This is the reality though for us. I mean, what does the scriptures tell us? that the wages of sin is death, that Jesus paid with his blood our fee, if you will, that, that it cost Christ everything to adopt us into his family. And, and the other thing that's amazing about adoption is when, when you adopt someone, they don't just come into your house and become like JV son. You got your normal son that's, that's part of the actual birth order, and then this guy's like son B or son JV, and so he doesn't get quite as much, like this guy gets the inheritance and this guy gets like my socks when I die or something like that, you know, that's not how it works, right? When you adopt someone into your family, they are heirs, they are as sons, they take on your name, they take on every, they are part of the family, and so too, what does the scripture tell us? That we are joint heirs with Jesus Christ, adopted as sons and daughters of God. He didn't just pick you to be on his team, he picked you to be his son. That is incredible. Then we talked about the fact that we've been redeemed, the blessing that we've been redeemed. In that ancient culture, if a family experienced financial hardship that was devastating enough, they were into a debt that they couldn't get out of on their own, then one of the options for them was to actually become slaves, voluntarily submit themselves as slaves to pay off the debt. But there was also a practice within that culture that let's say down the line somewhere you had a kinsman. If you've ever studied the book of Ruth and you understand the concept of the kinsman redeemer. A kinsman finds out, wait, Uncle Jeff is in slavery because of his debt. And so he would have the option, if he could pay the price, to come to where you are when he hears about your situation. He would go to the local temple and he would pay the fee, whatever that debt is that you owed, plus a cut. The temple would keep that cut. It's been going on in church for years, people. Just get used to it. The temple would keep the cut, and then they would deliver that money, the, the money that was required to pay off your debt. They would deliver it to that person and pay off your debt, and you were set free. Now, you were set free, legally free, but it was understood by everyone that you are now indebted to the one who had redeemed you and specifically indebted to the God that had set you free. And so too, we have been redeemed. The Bible says that we have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that we have fallen. And the Bible says that the wages of sin, the cost of our sin is what? Death. And so what happened? Christ, our kinsman redeemer, aware of our debt, aware of our inability to do anything about our circumstances, humbled himself, came to our situation, endured and paid the debt of sin, died on the cross. It says in the text, we just read it, we have redemption through his blood. By pouring out his blood, he paid the price for our sin. Not just that we can be set free. Jeff, you're set free, now go do what you want. But no, that we have been set free to follow him and to be part of the kingdom of God. Paul says, when you know that, you're blessed, blessed. Then we have forgiven. 
which is not the same. It, it, a lot of times we think of that issue of redemption and then we think about forgiven and we think, well, those are one and the same. But think about it like this. Jesus could have come, paid our debt, died for our sins, died on the cross, rose again, then now we're in eternity with him and he's just dangling that carrot over us or even in life now. Jeff, remember you did this and this and this and this and this and we ain't even got to that. He could have held that over. Have you ever seen anyone do that? You've ever maybe found that you've done that yourself where you do a good act for someone but then you're using it as leverage after the fact? It's not what Christ did. That's not what Christ did at all. Romans says that he has passed over former sins. Micah said that he has compassion over us and that he has cast our iniquity to where? Anyone know? The bottom of the sea. And there's some interesting things about that. Number one, anyone that's seen Nemo knows how the bottom of the sea works, right? The bottom, bottom. How much light's down there? Except for the fish with the flashlights and headlamps. Other than that, there's not a lot of light. So, so it's as if that's been put in a place where it cannot be seen. But even more than that, the Jewish culture in many areas at this particular time actually had great fear of the ocean and fear of the sea. And so the idea is that it's been cast in a place where no one even dares to go look for it. Psalm says our iniquities have been separated for us as far as what? East is from west. And the idea is east and west never intersect. They just keep going. And so once you have been forgiven by Christ of your sin, your sin and you never intersect anymore. God has redeemed you and adopted you and forgiven you of your sin, which is an amazing thing. And when we know that, we are what? We are blessed. We are blessed. And then as we talked about last week, there's the plan. God's plan has been revealed to us and we've been included in it. That things aren't just randomly happening. History's not just playing out however it plays out. That God has a plan. Things are going somewhere and everything that happens in history from the smallest to the biggest, God is working into and is sovereign over so that everything accomplishes his plan. And that plan is Jesus. The scriptures say that, in this text actually says that everything is being united in him or summed up in him or reconciled back to Jesus. And so we go back to this idea of shalom. When, when we last had it, we stood in the garden. Adam stood in the garden before God. Perfect relationship with God because there's no sin in the way. He's not been separated by sin and shame. Perfect relationship with Eve because they're not hiding from one another. There's none of those things. They are in perfect relationship with one another. And then also perfect relationship in harmony with all creation. Not afraid of snakes, petting tigers. All of those things are in perfect order because of their relationship with God. But when sin came, that was fractured and broken. And so then what's the reality? That Jesus came and was broken, was torn apart so that all of this could be put right back together again. And so there comes the day when we will get to stand before Jesus just as Adam stood before God in that way. And everything's going to be shalom. That thing you're looking for in life, whatever it is, whatever it is you're looking for, the relationship, the job, the money, whatever it is you're pursuing, it's not that. You're looking to fill a hole, a void. We, we called it, Tim Keller called it, we brought up last week, a memory trace. It's as if, in, as if in our humanity we are missing something and it's because we were created to live in shalom with God. And the mission of God that's broken down here in the book of Ephesians is that God is putting all things back together again. He has already given us every gift necessary that we might have Shalom. And so we get to the last two, which we're going to kind of address as one topic, honestly. It's in verses 13 and 14 that we have been guaranteed an inheritance and sealed by the Spirit. Let's read those two verses. It says in verse 13, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Now, I'll give you a little sneak preview of things to come. 
everything addressed in Ephesians chapter 1, particularly in Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, Paul almost does it as an introduction at some other point in the book of Ephesians, he's going to go into other details or further details about every one of these things that he presents. So this particular topic is one that I've been looking at for a long time, knowing it was coming, and to a certain degree dreading. Not that I don't like teaching it, but it's such a massive topic with so many misunderstandings and so many um, um, applications to our lives. And just, man, how do you teach on the Holy Spirit in one teaching as we're going through this list? Because in with the flow of this list, it just doesn't seem right to do more than one session or more than one sermon on this. But man, it's just so big. Well, we have Ephesians chapter four, so we'll get to some other stuff on the Holy Spirit later. There's a lot of things we could talk about, the spiritual gifts, how the Spirit speaks to us, how the Spirit woos the unbeliever, how the Spirit guides the believer. There's lots of different aspects of the ministry of the Holy Spirit that is really important, that'll be really good for us as a church to get to when we get there in, later on in the book of Ephesians. But in this particular case, what Paul reaches to when he talks about the gift of the Holy Spirit, he says specifically, we have been sealed by the Holy Spirit and that the Holy Spirit is itself a guarantee of our inheritance to come. This is echoed in the book of 1 Corinthians as well, that the Holy Spirit is, if you will, a down payment on something much better or much more full that's coming. So we have something in part that we will later have in much more fullness. This is the idea of the Holy Spirit here. And this is an incredible thing. And, and what happens is a lot of times we look at this text and especially Christianity, I would say Western Christianity within the last 30 to 40 years, we've taken a very man-centric approach to this. What we've done is we've said this, man, the goal of salvation is heaven, and what's heaven all about? And we describe heaven based on us. Or we'll take this text in particular and we'll say, the Holy Spirit is the down payment on the inheritance that we are gonna get from God. So what is it we're gonna get from God in eternity when we're with him? What is that full thing that we're gonna get? Well, what are the descriptions of heaven that you've always had growing up? Mansions, no pain, no sorrow, gold streets, pearly gates, all of those kind of things. Getting to see people you haven't seen. Maybe things like, oh, maybe we'll get to fly. <laughs> all kinds of, maybe you're like, uh, no more wrinkles, no more bad hip, no more whatever the case may be. And look, is that true? Is that true, those things? I mean, I don't know about the flying part, but the rest of it, is that true? Yeah, it's true. It's totally true. Man, in heaven, we have eternal life. We have no more sorrow, no more tears. We have all of these things are such incredible gifts and they're really good things. And God would look at us as a good father giving gifts to his children and he would say, I want you to be excited about those things. I want you to be excited that you're not gonna hurt anymore. If anything, the pain we experience now should point us to a greater and greater desire for heaven. I want you to be excited about those things, but... We have had historically in our current cultural climate an emphasis on that that I think leaves out some more important attributes of that. And, and it really stems a lot from our own Western cultural understanding of things. Um, for example, when we talk about the mansions, where does that come from? Well, the scriptures say that in my father's house there are many rooms, but that's been translated in some translations, many houses, and God's not going to put us in a shanty, so it's got to be a mansion, and, and so on and so on and so forth. And that's kind of the way our current, just because of the culture that we live in, right? We, it doesn't seem like heaven to share a house with another family, does it not? Anyone ever lived in a setting like that? Um, no one wants that. If you live in apartments, you're really worried about who's going to move in above you. If you're in a duplex, man, please, Lord, don't give us noisy neighbors next door. Like, that doesn't sound like heaven to us at all. But actually, in the context in which those things were written, when he says, in my father's house, it literally says there are many rooms. And when you understand the culture there, when someone married into a family and was brought into the household, they added on a room. And so the family grew within the same household. See, the emphasis is God's bringing us, like we talked about being adopted, God's bringing us into the family. What house are we gonna live in? What's it gonna look like? I don't have any idea. I don't think you're gonna care. I don't think that's gonna be the point. And I think that's the idea here in the text. Because what happens when we take a, I'm calling it a man-centric view towards heaven, we look at heaven only through the lens of what we get. 
Does God want us to be excited about our gifts? Of course he does. What dad wants to give a child a gift and hear the kid go, eh, whatever. So of course he wants us to be excited about his gifts. But is that the point? Is the point of salvation and the point of our relationship with God the stuff we get from God? I want you to turn to Revelation chapter 4. And I'm going to walk you through a few different things going through the book of Revelation that talks about scenes from heaven. And I want you to pay attention to the things that are going on in each of these texts as we look through them. And then think about that. What's important here? What is, what's being described here? What's the emphasis of the things going on here? Like, for example, in chapter 4, verse 1, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who, had, he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him seated on the throne who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And look, notice this. And they cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory, honor, power. For you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. Maybe you've heard before things that when we do things to serve and honor God, that we are setting for ourselves, if you will, crowns waiting in heaven. You've heard that before? So if the prize from God was the point, I would imagine we would spend some time in heaven polishing those bad boys, wouldn't you think? If the thrones were the point, we would probably be kicking back going, this thing is comfortable, I like this. But here we see these 24 elders around the throne with their crowns, their own thrones, and what are they doing? They're out of those seats. They are on their faces before God. They're taking those crowns. They are throwing them to the, to the feet of God saying, these prizes mean nothing to us compared to you. Maybe the prizes aren't the point. Look at Revelation chapter 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who seated on the throne a scroll written on the back, within and on the back, and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open this scroll or look into it. This scroll is, as it were, the deed of earth. It's, it's the thing that says, who is it that is worthy to take possession of this earth and of God's people? Who is worthy before God to take these things? And we know from our sin and our failure that we are not worthy. And so as the call goes out across the earth and across the heavens, there is no man, there is no one found worthy to take this scroll. And he begins to weep, but verse 5, one of the elders said to me, this is the apostle John, one of the elders says to John, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Just real quick for those who aren't, who is the lion of the tribe of Judah? Really quick, his name is? Jesus. So here's John. There's no one worthy. And this elder comes and says, don't weep. 
Christ has prevailed. Christ is worthy. And look at verse 6. And between the throne and the four living creatures, among those elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God set out on all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll... The four living creatures, the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. And can I just tell you, the 24 elders don't have vertigo. It's going to seem like it because they're going to fall down a lot. But they don't have vertigo. It says they fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. And then as others are watching on, look at verse 11. Others sang with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. No one in here is going, isn't my mansion amazing? But all attention is on the Lamb of God. And no one feels worthy to stand before him in that moment. They're worshiping him and falling on their faces before him. Maybe the prize isn't the point. Look at Revelation 7, verse 9. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation. This is us, by the way. This is us in eternity. After this I looked, behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hand and crying out with a loud voice, where's my neighborhood? <laughs> no, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And the angels standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever, amen. You know what it sounds like? It sounds like Paul's gushing. They're just overcome with worship at how amazing God is. Maybe the prizes aren't the point. But let's be sure, Revelation 11... Verse 15, and then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and elder. <laughs> it just makes me laugh when we read it in this flow. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces before and worshiped God saying, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was. Do any of you ever been to a denominational church where you're like standing for a song and then you're sitting and then you're standing for a song and then you're sitting? They're just getting you ready for heaven. Stand, fall, stand, fall. This is the program of heaven. And all attention is on the glory and majesty of God. It's starting to look pretty evident, isn't it? I wonder what Revelation 19 says. Verse 4. <laughs> Anyone want to guess what they're going to do? And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, amen, hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Look at Revelation 21. Boy, if this passage doesn't give you goosebumps, man, something's wrong. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. Verse 2, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall, no more, shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And also he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. 
And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. Now we're, we're using inheritance language like we've been using in, in uh, um, what are we in? Ephesians, right? So what's he say? You're going to have this heritage. This is the inheritance you're going to have. A four-story mansion on a gated cul-de-sac with trees to block car headlights. No. What's the heritage that he refers to? I will be his God and he will be my son. Let me tell you something. When we get to heaven, you're going to be excited about a lot of things. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard what the Lord has prepared for those who love him. But the thing that is going to fire you up the most is you get God. You get God. Just to be thorough, Revelation 22, verse 8. And I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book, worship God. John the Baptist sees all this and he's blown away in this angel that's giving him this revelation. And he's like, I have to, he's moved to worship and he bows before the angel and the angel says, I'm not the point either. I'm nothing, just a servant. You worship God. We miss out on the most important thing when we turn heaven into a reward system for our stuff. We miss out on the most important thing when our only thoughts towards heaven is what mansion are we going to live in and how amazing is it going to be to be in our new bodies. And those are all important things. The scriptures wouldn't give them to us, wouldn't speak of them if he didn't want us to know those things, okay? But the most important thing, we get God. Now think about this. The scripture says, back in Ephesians, the scripture says in our text that the Holy Spirit, that we, when, we begin, uh, when we are saved, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. When you hear the words of truth, the gospel of grace, and you believe in Jesus Christ, you believe in who he is, you understand your situation before God, our helplessness, our sinfulness, and we repent of our sins, we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, something changes. It says that the Holy Spirit is given to you, and there are a lot of implications with that. But the one specific one that is mentioned here is it says that we are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance. Now, we don't really have anything in our culture now that's too close to that. Back then, you would seal letters with wax stamps and things like that. We don't do a lot of that unless you're incredibly into um, scrapbooking and that kind of stuff, which I love those cards when you send them. They're great. Just don't expect that from me. It's probably not going to happen. Uh, I would have wax all over me and burn my finger. You'd have burn marks on the car to be a mess. But one thing we do have that can help us understand what this really means is ranchers, cattlemen, will sear or brand cattle with their seal, if you will. Initials, mark, whatever the case may be. This is something that they do. And it's very similar to what's going on because it has the same kind of implication. When a rancher seals, if you will, that's what we're gonna call it, when he brands his cattle, number one, it denotes value. It denotes value. This cow is something of value to the rancher. He doesn't want to lose it. That's why he's marking it in, this, in the first place. They don't go around searing everything. They sear cattle. I've never seen a rancher sear a cat. Because they don't make any money off of it. I, I, don't send me letters this time. I'm begging you. You always send me cat letters. Look, I'm not dogging cats. I'm just <laughs> dogging cats. <laughs> No, what I'm saying is they don't make money off of those, right? That's not where the income is. Their value is not in the cat. Those are a dime a dozen and free in the paper. What they're after is the cattle. That's, it's a value to them. And, and this is the case with God. He's sealing you. And I'm not trying to go too man-centric on this. Don't go too far. But he does value you. He wouldn't send his son to die for you if he didn't. 
In fact, the price that was paid to purchase you makes you incredibly valuable. And so you've been sealed with the Holy Spirit for this. That means you, you matter to God. Please know that. You matter to God. We tend to think God's just frustrated with us all the time because of our failures. But that's when we look at God through the lens of our behavior. That's legalism. We crush that in Galatians. When you look at God through the lens of the cross, you understand how important he sees you because he's adopted you into his family. There's value. Now, you can go way too far with that, but we're stopping right there. Amen? There's value in that. The second thing is it's not just denoting value. It denotes ownership. this, This brand says this is who this cow belongs to. This seal says this is who this belongs to. In other words, when God seals you with his Holy Spirit the day that you get saved, he's pointing at you and he's saying, this one's mine. This one is mine. Man, what a gift that is. I'm not making this up. It's in the scriptures. 1 Peter 2, 9 says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. He wants you. You are his. Instead of focusing so much on, man, salvation means I get this and this and this. What an amazing truth to understand that salvation means God gets you that God chose you, that he wants you, that you get God. We read in Revelation 21, I heard with a loud voice, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. That's infinitely more than a material inheritance. It's an important truth. It denotes ownership. And then the third thing is this, which is also important. It marks for protection. A rancher protects those that he's sealed. And we see this throughout Scripture. For example, in the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel has this vision, though he's some six, 700 miles away from Jerusalem. He has this vision where he's brought back to Jerusalem and he sees this really sad portrayal where the glory of God leaves the temple because of the sinfulness of that city. And judgment is coming and punishment is coming. And it's a really dark, sad, woeful passage that the wrath of God has had enough of this and it's coming. But then there in that vision, it says in Ezekiel, uh, I forget the chapter, but just track with me anyway. In, In the book of Ezekiel, it comes to a point where it speaks that in that vision, there's a man in linen. And he's got writing utensils around his waist. And the voice of God says to that man, go and mark on the foreheads the people who are mine. And so he goes amongst the people to literally put a mark upon the forehead of the people of God. Why? So that they can be spared the wrath and the judgment that was coming to that city. So God marks them that he might protect them. They're his. So he values them, he owns them, and he's going to protect them. And we see this play out for us too in the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 13 and 14, I don't care who you are, everyone has some sort of mark on their head. Everyone does. But whose mark you're carrying makes all the difference in the world. If you have the mark of the Antichrist or the mark of the beast, as Revelation says it, then you are protected by who? the beast. So you can do whatever he says you can do. You will not endure the judgment of the beast because your allegiance has been declared to him and you are covered and protected by him. But you are going to face wrath though, not the wrath of the beast maybe, but you're going to face the wrath of the lamb, the scriptures say. But if instead you carry the mark of the lamb, you are protected by God. You are not going to endure the wrath of God. You are to be protected from that. He has chosen you. You're going to be a people for his own possession. You might endure the wrath of the beast. Everyone's going to endure something. But the most important question is, which do you choose? Well, what do the scriptures tell us? Matthew 10, 28, Jesus himself said, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And so you better choose Jesus. You better choose Jesus. The beauty 
of the Holy Spirit that comes to the person who has put their faith in Jesus and has sealed them for inheritance, but has sealed you to be the inheritance of God, that you might be protected from the wrath that this world so rightfully deserves. So not a popular topic in our culture, amen? But it's coming. It's real. And so you better choose Jesus. And so Paul concludes all of this that he is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Have you chosen Jesus? If you haven't, you need to understand you're gonna choose one or the other. If you are not a follower of Christ, then you have set yourself up to endure the wrath of God and you cannot do this. You need to understand the grace, mercy, and love of Jesus Christ who desires to save everyone from this, who desires to save us from ourselves, from our own sinfulness and our own wickedness, and you need to put your faith in Jesus and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit that you might be saved. Sam's gonna be coming up here in the gang. They're gonna be leading us in worship in a minute. There's gonna be some men and women available in the back. If you have not put your faith in Jesus, I'm begging you. As Paul would say, I'm standing here before you, if you will, as a representative of God himself, begging you, be reconciled to God. But if you've already done that, then what we're gonna do right now is we're gonna take some time to practice for heaven. Because Paul has just said to us right here, guys, do you understand what you have? Do you understand what God has done for us? He chose you. The God of heaven and earth chose you. He didn't just choose you, he adopted you. He has purchased you back to himself. He has forgiven you of all of your sins. He's revealed his plan to you. He's included you in his plan. He has sealed you with with his Holy Spirit and prepared an inheritance for you. And the best part of the entire thing, all of the inheritance, as great as it all is, you get God. And and can I just share one thing that that should help put into perspective what a big deal this is. This week, there was a big Christian concert in town. Just out of curiosity, how many of you guys went to Need to to Breathe and Switchfoot in town? Quite a few people, right? Um, I know this, not because I went, but because social media blew up because the lead singer of Switchfoot decided to sing one of his songs while walking through the crowd. You guys saw that? It's pretty cool when they do that, right? And so here's what happened, though. This is a human thing. When that happened, everyone was taking pictures, selfies, video, and social media goes nuts. John Foreman walked right beside me in the concert. This is so cool. And what are you doing? You're exulting. You're praising. And that's a, that's a good thing. I think that's cool too. But think about that. Think about how far we go, how quick. I can't wait to get word out that the singer of a band, I shouldn't dog him. <laughs> They're, they're probably on their way out some, but I shouldn't say that. But the singer of a band that we love, music, he, he stood next to me when the scriptures say, do you understand what you have in Christ? You should exult. You should praise. You should sing. And so some people ask me sometimes about worship on Sunday mornings in particular. They're like, why is, sometimes worship's really loud and it's really upbeat and all this kind of stuff. And I'm just telling you right now, we're preparing you for heaven. We are serving you. Because here's the reality, there's a place for reverential, quiet, contemplative worship as we consider things, right? There's a place for that. But there is also a place to rejoice and to understand how is it that I get God? How is it that God would pick me? How is it that we, us, this group of knuckleheads, can be adopted into the family of God. If we would get excited because our favorite singer was nearby, how much more excited would she, should we get that the creator of heaven and earth said, you're my son. That should produce joy in our hearts. So we're gonna worship Jesus right now. If you don't know Jesus, go to the back. Don't let pride keep you stuck in your seat. Get off your feet and go for goodness sakes. For the rest of us, and we're gonna sing with all our heart. Men in particular, let me tell you, men, you can you can tell when God does a work in a man's heart when he sings. You can tell. Because we men, you women may not know this yet, we tend to be sometimes prideful. Just occasionally. 
And we're in this culture, we're men, we're all this kind of stuff. But when God changes a heart and frees a man to be able to worship in the same way we would go worship at a dumb basketball game, and I'm a basketball fan, and when God sets you free for that, then I know God's doing some hard work in you. So I'm challenging you, men, you lead your families in worship. You be the example who sets the tone for your family that says, we will celebrate a lot of things in life. We'll celebrate bands. We'll celebrate all this kind of stuff. But nothing in our family will we celebrate more than Jesus Christ, the Son of God, because nothing is more worthy than our, of our praise than Jesus. Amen? So let's stand and sing. God, will you just receive this praise? God, will you receive this offering, Lord? May you move in our hearts that we might understand the reality of this truth that you have chosen us. Lord, even as we sing this first song, literally taken from your very book that we just studied in Ephesians, may our hearts be moved by these truths. And may we, like Paul, not just be singing a song and not even manufacturing emotion, but may we literally just be gushing with praise at the love and goodness you have shown us, Lord. And we pray these things in your name. Amen.